It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia All-Star Break. We're sitting on our ass. We're all sweating because it's really a hot outside edition of Rico Bronia. Evan Roberts, I got a little week off from WFAM. Pete Hoffman, I think he's vacationing too, getting away from Tiki and Tierney. Uh, three things we're going to cover on the Rico today. Number one at the Grom update, obviously that's the, the latest news in Metland. Number two, a walk down memory lane, trade deadlines have passed, and really how we did as a franchise, good and bad. And the number three, the big board of trade targets as we sit here a couple of weeks away from this August 2nd or August 3rd trade deadline. I'm so used to July 31st that anything that's not July 31st is freaking weird. So I've made a big list of targets, mostly focusing on bats and mostly focusing on relief arms. We'll touch on a starting pitcher or two. We'll touch on a catcher. But it's really those two areas, which in my opinion, are clearly the biggest need going into the trade deadline. Let's start with Jake. Uh, Number one, I can't freak out about arm soreness in general. I can't freak out about, hey, he's going to throw a simulated game two days later, as opposed to he's not throwing a simulated game at all, as opposed to he's being shut down and we're starting over. But because it's Jake, it's nerve-wracking. And I've said this before about Jake, who's my all-time favorite Met, so I am a DeGrom stan. But it is very, very difficult to trust that he's going to A, come back and be healthy, and then B, remain healthy. That's not being negative. That's not being some weird Will Pony and Met fan. That's just being real. DeGrom hasn't been healthy for a year. So as much as I love the guy, as much as I think most of us love the guy, as, most, as much as we all envision that one-two punch of Jake and Max coming at you in the postseason, it's a rumor until it happens. And I admit, a part of this, a small part of it, is coming from everything I dealt with as a net fan over the last few years. When this guy's healthy, when that guy's healthy, when this happens, and none of it ever happened. So I'm used to kind of dealing with rumors, <laughs> dealing with when or if this happens, this will be amazing. But look, the reality is I love the guy. I love Jake. It is very difficult based on the history of the last two years to trust that he's going to stay healthy. So two things can be true at the same time. Number one, you could be very nervous about him coming back and nervous about him remaining back. And number two, you could look at this quote-unquote setback and shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, not a big deal. Because the reality is, as long as he's throwing his simulated game on Thursday, and we'll see if he does, but as long as he is throwing his simulated game on Thursday, and as long as he's not being shut down, 
And as long as there isn't a new MRI that reveals some damage, there's nothing to get crazy about. But I think what we all have to realize, and this is even after Jake comes back, assuming he does, I know as a Met fan, as a DeGrom stan, I'm going to be checking Twitter worried for that latest update. And how can you not? Because of what we dealt with over the last couple of years. So Jake's one of those guys, and I love him, and I would still re-sign him, and I still can't imagine him in any other uniform, but I think start to start, update to update, we're always going to be on edge about when and if something bad is going to happen. And that's why, you know, I hear this talk about, well, you've got to attack the trade deadline as if Jake isn't coming back. Look, they attacked the offseason as if Jake wasn't coming back. That's why they signed Max Scherzer. At least that's one of my big beliefs, because the Mets have one of those rare guys in baseball, a true ace. Ask yourself this, how many true aces are there in Major League Baseball? Seriously, think about that. How many true aces are there in Major League Baseball in 2022? And what you're going to realize when you think about that is it is a very, very short list. The Mets have, in theory, two of them, but right now one of them in Max Scherzer. And that's why when they made that move during the offseason, maybe calling it DeGrom insurance isn't the fairest thing in the world because we all envisioned Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling 2.0, but you do give yourself the ultimate DeGrom insurance. So let's just start there. Big deep breath. Hopefully he throws his bullpen on Thursday. There's no rush in terms of when his first start is, whether it's against the Yankees, whether it's against the Marlins, whether it's the next home, whatever the hell it is, as long as it's before September 1st. That's my line of demarcation. If it's after September 1st, then, well, I don't know if we're getting Jacob DeGrom in the postseason. All right? We all feel good? We feeling all right, Pete? You okay over there? Or are you nervous about Jake? You feeling all right? I mean, I said it from day one. I thought September 1st was when he's going to pitch next, which I know is absurd to think that. But, I mean, realistically, he's taking this so slow. The team is taking it so slow. I'm not overly concerned just because of how slow this has gone. But I, to your point, though, you're saying that the, the they planned to have a season without DeGrom still doesn't mean that I want them to not be aggressive and try to bring in another starter. Well, we'll get to that in a second. When we get to the big board of trade targets, we'll break down the idea of adding a starting pitcher. Because, look, it's a cliche, but it's true. You never have enough starting pitching. I mean, I think that's that's been proven throughout the years. Now, take this as a case study. I went back, a lot of it by memory, some of it by going to baseball reference, to remind myself of the last 25 years of the New York Mets at the trade deadline. Now, a couple of things as we go back into history. Number one, the selling at the trade deadline, I'm going to leave that part out. Selling Carlos Beltran for Zach Wheeler in 2011, I'm going to leave that part out. Selling uh, Brett Saberhagen to the Rockies at the trade deadline, I think that's past 25 years, but you get what I'm saying. I'm leaving it out because it's irrelevant. The Mets selling at the deadline, which they've done a lot of, I mean, look, there's been a lot of years in which we knew on July 31st this team was going nowhere. So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of Bobby Bonilla for Alex Ochoa's, okay? Roberto Alomar for Royce Ring, if you want to call that a sell job. So I went back, a a lot of it by memory, some of it by, wow, I forgot about that one, and took a look at all the buying the Mets have done over the last 25 years. And there's a few conclusions that we're going to come to after you hear this list. So let's start with 1997. This was big for me because this was my first trade deadline as like someone who understands what the hell is going on and the Mets are buying. 
Because I understood when they sold David Cohn for Jeff Kent and Ryan Thompson. But you know what I understood? We sucked and we were going nowhere. I understood selling Bobby Bonilla to Baltimore for Alex Ochoa and Damon Buford. But what did I understand? We sucked and we were going nowhere. Brett Saberhagen for Juan Acevedo. But 1997 was different. Because for those of you in your mid to late 30s, early 40s, this was your first pennant race. This was my first pennant race. 1997. At the trade deadline, they actually didn't do anything at the trade deadline. They did something five days after the trade deadline. But we'll include the August trades, even though that doesn't exist anymore. They were six and a half games out of first place. And they were two games behind the Marlins in the wild card spot. And I remember as a fan saying to my dad, we got to do something. I mean, all these years of selling and selling and selling. What are we going to do? And I'll never forget this one. And this is such a weird trade in Met history because it really wasn't a buying and it wasn't a selling. It was like a regular player-for-player player trade. But the way it came out was that the New York Mets were acquiring Brian McRae, Mel Rojas, and Turk Wendell from the Chicago Cubs. And I, this one is fresh in my memory. It was announced as the Mets are trading three players to be named later. That's the way I heard it on Mike and the Mad Dog as a kid. And I'm like, what players to be named? Who? Like, well, that matters. I mean, who the hell are they giving up? And it wasn't prospects. They gave up three guys from the Major League roster, if you recall. Lance Johnson, Mark Clark, who almost pitched the Mets' first no-hitter, I think, the year before, and Manny Alexander. And as the names were popping up, as a kid, as a 14-year-old, I was a little pissed off about this. I loved Lance Johnson. One dog was his nickname. Remember, he had that incredible year, a year before, 1996. And while I always liked Brian McRae, because from afar, I thought he was like this brilliant defensive center fielder, let alone that I realized that once he came to the Mets, he wasn't. He was very overrated in my mind, at least. I remember being a, what? And let this be the framework for future generations. If you're going for it, and the 1997 Mets were going for it. They were two and a half games out of a wild card spot. Granted, it was the Marlins, the jacked up Marlins with all the talent that they had. You can't trade guys on your roster for other guys. Like, you got to trade prospects. I, that's, that's the whole point. So looking back at that trade, had it work out? Well, let, let's go through it. Mel Rojas was an abomination. He was one of the worst relievers in the history of the franchise. A long line of relievers you trade out at the deadline that go on to suck. Brian McRae was blah as a Met. He was blah. And Turk Wendell was the key to the trade. <laughs> Who the hell saw that coming? So I think looking back on it, it wasn't a bad trade. Because what did Lance Johnson, Mark Clark, and Manny Alexander do after that? Nothing really. So I kind of look back at it as the Turk Wendell trade. But Mel Rojas brought us so much pain. And if you recall, right after they made that trade, the Mets lost 8 out of 10 and sort of fell out of it. So... Our first foray, at least my first foray, 25 years ago into the trade deadline was a blah. All right? 1998. The Mets are three games out of a wild card spot. They're chasing the Sammy Sosa juiced up Chicago Cubs. This was one of the most underwhelming trade deadlines of all time. They traded Mike Kincaid for Bill Pulsifer. Yippity freaking doodah. They brought back Pulse, except he wasn't any good. At that point, he was like a left-handed reliever. They traded for Tony Phillips who I remember being sort of excited about. Like, ah, Tony Phillips, big on base guy, lead him off, steal a few bases. Little did I realize over the next month and a half, I still have visions of Tony Phillips striking out looking against like Greg Maddox the final weekend of the year. Little did I know that Tony Phillips was completely toast and would suck 
for the next month and a half as a New York Met. And then they traded Bernard Gilkey and Nelson Figueroa, believe that, as a prospect, for Jorge Fabregas and Willie Blair. And my only memory of Willie Blair is him giving up a home run to Mark McGuire, I think. Uh, doubleheader, Shea Stadium. It may have been his 50th home run, and I think it may have been the one that went off that right center field scoreboard. So that trade deadline sucked. And obviously the Mets collapsed down the stretch of the year. They lost their last five games to the Expos and the Braves, and it all went to craps. This is a weird one. 1999. And I'm going to get crap for saying this, but I got to be honest. They traded Terrence Long, who turned out to be a solid major leaguer, for Kenny Rogers. Before we get nuts, Kenny Rogers was awesome for the New York Mets over the last two months of the year. It's a true story. Like Kenny Rogers came here and was very, very good. And remember, at this point, this was right after he was a New York Yankee, so he had already experienced the Kenny Rogers disaster in New York City. But he was actually pretty good. The problem for Kenny, and as time has gone by, I've really much apologized for this. For a while, Kenny Rogers became the picture to losing to the Braves in the NLCS in 1999 because he walked Andrew Jones. And yes... Just throw the freaking ball down the middle. Let Andrew Jones hit a grand slam for all I care. You can't lose a series on a walk. But when you really think about that game and that series against Atlanta in 1999, it was not Kenny Rogers. I'm sorry. Armando Benitez blew a lead in the 10th inning. He's the one who gave up a base hit to Ozzie Guillen. John Franco blew a lead in the 8th inning. He's the one that gave up a hit to Brian Hunter. Al Leiter is the one that didn't record an out in Game 6. So as time has gone by, I have sort of forgiven Kenny Rogers for the failure of walking Andrew Jones in game six. Because the truth is, he was a good Met during the regular season. But here's an underrated one. Very underrated trade. And these are the ones that sometimes are the biggest. Keep that in mind when we talk about the deadline in a little bit. They traded Craig Paquette for a washed-up Sean Dunstan. How great was that? Sean Dunstan was a key piece off the bench, had the at-bat of the year to start the rally right before the Robin Ventura Grand Slam single. In the rain, Dunstan kept fouling freaking pitches off and then ground ball right center field base hit. Very underrated, good depth deal when they made that trade. All right, here's an all-time bad one, all right? This is a bad one, I'm warning you. Jason Isringhausen, who would go on and have a very good career as a closer, and Greg McMichael, who gives a crap, for Billy Taylor. Billy Taylor, much like Mel Rojas, another piece of crap that came over here and sucked out of the bullpen. He was so bad. I don't even think they used him in the postseason. I think he was just bad for a month, and then the Mets realized, what the hell are we doing with ourselves? It is a waste of time. The other one that wasn't bad is they traded Brian McRae, Rigo Beltran, and Tom Johnson for Daryl Hamilton and Chuck McElroy. Hamilton was a good Met. Had a bunch of clutch hits during that run in 99 and 2000. Greg McElroy sucked. I think of him as a little lefty with glasses on. Uh, you looked at him and said, how's he getting anybody out? But Hamilton turned out to be a good Met. So you look at that trade deadline, it actually wasn't bad. Kenny Rogers, good Met for two months. Sean Dunstan, key piece out of the bullpen. The big mistake was Isring Hassan for Billy Taylor. If you could just take that one out. It was a fine trade deadline in 1999. Now let's get to 2000, because this one also very, very complicated. Ray Ordonez got hurt. And say what you want about Ray's bat, 
Ray was a part of one of the great defensive infields we ever saw in 1999. Obviously, this is 2000. John Olerud's out. Todd Zeal's sort of learning for a space. Still a very good defensive infield. Not as good as it was a year earlier, but Ray Ordonez being out for the year was a killer. And Steve Phillips made a monumental mistake. He didn't trust Melvin Mora. He didn't. He basically said, we can't win with Melvin Mora at shortstop. Now, as we know, Melvin Mora was a postseason hero a year earlier in 1999. He was great during that series against Atlanta. Defensive plays, getting big hits. He was unbelievable. And would actually go on and have a very solid career for the Baltimore Orioles. But Steve Phillips flat out didn't trust the young player on his roster. So he packaged him up. He packaged Mike Kincaid up. He packaged uh, Pat Gorman and somebody called Leslie Bray and traded for Mike Bordick. And look, Mike Bordick had a home run in his first at-bat as a Met, but I still think back to the Luis Soho base hit against Al Leiter, and I wonder if they had a competent defensive shortstop, if Ray Ordonez was out there, do they make that play? So Mike Bordick was a blah Met. Then he's gone at the end of the year. Then he goes back to Baltimore. But really, it wasn't about Mike Bordick more than it was about not trusting the guy you had on your roster. And the guy you had on your roster was Melvin Mora. And look what he turned out to become. Look what he turned into. Incredible. Incredible. Then you've got Paul Wilson and Jason Tyner. (laughs) I love hearing about the... I I don't want to say I love. It's depressing hearing about how the big three Generation K era ended. Pulsifer's traded, Isringhausen's traded, and now Paul Wilson is traded with Jason Tyner for Rick White, who is a solid reliever, and Bubba Trammell. Whatever. 